0: You're listening to a message from our Sunday morning service at Hayes Hills Baptist Church, where we seek to bring life-changing hope to an ever-changing people through the unchanging gospel. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit hayeshills.com. Our prayer is that this message would serve to equip and empower you to live as a follower of Jesus in conjunction with your belonging to a local body of believers. Well, we're currently walking through our series on 1 Corinthians, which we'll be in for the majority of this year, we'd encourage you to follow along, and we hope that this message serves as a blessing to you.
1: Um, in, in Greek mythology, the, the founder of Corinth is a man by the name of Sisyphus, and, and he's cursed by the gods to spend all of eternity rolling this giant boulder up a up a hill until right as he reaches the top of the hill, those, the boulder just rolls back down and he has to start all over again. And so he's destined to an eternity of meaningless work. It's, it's accomplishing nothing. It's getting him nowhere. And if we were to translate that into our context, it might be like uh, you know, being consigned to do data entry in a spreadsheet each day, only for someone to come in five minutes before the end of the day and delete the file so that you've got to input the same data the next day. It's, it's a lot of work, day after day after day, that's accomplishing nothing and getting you nowhere. And the philosopher Camus, he says, you know, we don't want to admit it. We try to distract ourselves from it, but this is actually what our lives are like. Our lives are just pushing boulders up a hill for them to slide back down because our lives—they're really meaningless. Uh, we busy ourselves with activities. We we rush, you know, from this soccer practice to that baseball practice to this dance recital. We uh, we go here and there. That vacation. We work long hours into the night. We we pour ourselves into our work. We do everything we can to distract us from the fact that our lives are are really just work that has no meaning. It's not getting us anywhere. And that sort of thinking is the kind of thinking that is the cause of all midlife crisis. I'm going to be turning 40 this year, and so people tell me I'm ripe for one. And and maybe some of you are in the midst of a midlife crisis right now. Maybe you've experienced one. And, and what happens in a midlife crisis is we, we kind of step back from our lives, we take a look, and we say, what have I accomplished in my life? What am I accomplishing? Am I doing anything that makes a difference? Is my life going to matter? Like, what is my purpose? What am I accomplishing? And, you know, you don't have to wait for midlife to ask those questions. You can ask those questions at the end of life. You can ask them early on in life. The, uh, you know, rather depressive filmmaker Woody Allen often shares how he was pretty happy as a child, at least up until the age of five. His happiness lasted a little while, when at the age of five he began to wrestle with his mortality, the fact that he was going to die, and that just shaped his outlook on life, and it's made him kind of a depressive person ever since. And that's why the opening scene of his film, Annie Hall, uh, features a mother who has taken her son to see the doctor. And she says, doc, my son is depressed. He won't get out of bed, he won't do his homework, he won't do anything, he's depressed and it's all because of something he's read. And the doctor looks at the boy and he says, boy, why, why are you depressed, what did you read? And he said, I read that the universe is expanding. And the universe is, you know, everything and if the universe is expanding, one day it's going to pull apart and then everything will be destroyed. Everything will be gone. So what's the point of anything? And, and that character is, is painting a picture of what Woody Allen was grappling with at five years old. That if I'm going to die and eventually one day this entire world is going to be destroyed, what is the point of anything? And you know, so some of you this morning, you're you're in midlife like me and you're looking back at your life, you're, you're looking at what you're doing now and you're saying, man, it, am I going to accomplish anything with my life? Because there's like not a lot left. Others of you, you're nearing the end of life and you're looking back at your life and you're saying, what, what have I accomplished? Have I done anything that's going to leave a legacy? And if you ask those questions through the lens of Camus or Woody Allen, you know what you're going to be? You're going to be depressed and you're going to be despondent because you're going to be convinced that, hey, I'm just busying myself to distract myself from my inevitable death and then the ultimate destruction of everything that there is. And so the Apostle Paul writes to people like you and me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He writes to us because, as Ernest Becker points out in his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Denial of Death, the most common cause of depression is a sense of our own mortality, a sense of the weakness of our bodies and resulting feelings of worthlessness. And those feelings are so common to us as humans that there is hardly a person in this room who isn't wrestling with them right now or hasn't wrestled with them in the recent past. And so the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth and to you and me to offer us help and hope when, when we are struggling to find meaning in our life and are finding ourselves sinking into depression or despondency. And so if you, like me, you need some help, you need some hope, or you know somebody who does, I, I want to encourage you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you've got a digital device with you that you can use to pull up the scriptures, I'd encourage you to search for the ESV, the English Standard Version. That's the translation of the Bible I'm going to be reading from this morning. And so if you search up 1 Corinthians 15, ESV, you'll be able to follow right along with me. And I'm going to begin reading there in verse 50. And here are the words of the Apostle Paul. He writes, I tell you this, brothers. always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And this is God's word to us today. And this morning, as we kind of conclude our time in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to focus our attention on verse 58. Because everything that Paul has been teaching in the 15th chapter has been driving to this point. Uh, What Paul taught in the opening verses about the gospel, uh, what Paul taught in verses 12 and following about the resurrection of Jesus, about the fact that when Jesus returns one day, all of those who have put their trust in Jesus will be raised from the dead to rule and reign with him forever. All that Paul has been teaching has been driving to verse 58, where he says, Therefore, but because of the gospel, because of the resurrection of Jesus, what should we be like? We should be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In other words, um, what Paul is saying to Camus and to the Woody Allens of the world is, that this meaninglessness that you wrestle with and, and struggle against, the answer to it is eternal life. That's the answer to meaninglessness. It is eternal life. Because Paul grants, hey, if, if these guys are right, if Camus, if Woody Allen, if Nietzsche, if, if the nihilists are right, that, that we're just distracting ourselves from our death and the destruction of the world, then nothing we do matters. Look back at verse 32. There in verse 32, Paul wrote, What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? In other words, I I had to deal with adversaries who wanted to tear me apart. He says, look, why would I go through all that? What, What would I profit from it? Because if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul is saying there in in verse 32, hey, if, if the nihilists are right, if this life is all that we've got, nothing we do matters. But, he says, if, if the resurrection is real, verse 54, then death is swallowed up in victory. Verse 58, if the resurrection is real, we ought to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our, our labor is not in vain. It's not meaninglessness. And so Paul's answer is to say, hey, this meaninglessness that you wrestle with, the, the way you solve it, the way you answer it is eternal life. Because if eternal life exists, it changes everything, doesn't it? I mean, the love that you have for other people, it, it doesn't just last until either you or they are buried in the ground. If this life is all we've got, love is temporary. But if eternal life exists, then the love that you have for others, it can last forever. Isn't, isn't that better? He says, if, if eternal life exists, then what you do in this life, it matters, not just for like 10, 20, 30, even 300 years. What you do in this life, it, it'll matter forever but because it has eternal consequences. Isn't that better? And so Paul is saying, look, eternal life is the answer to the meaninglessness that we struggle with. And. And the nihilists like Camus or Nietzsche or Woody Allen would say, hey, but isn't that convenient? You know, isn't it convenient that that eternal life steps in and solves all these problems? Isn't this just another delusion, another distraction that people use to be able to cope with life and, and to be able to distract themselves from death and destruction? This is just a fantasy. But that's precisely Paul's point in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That that eternal life isn't delusional. It isn't as ridiculous as it may sound. It isn't just wishful thinking. And the reason you can know that eternal life is real is because the resurrection is evidence. I mean, did you know that there are conversations that happen down the road at Seton Hospital every day that go something like this? Somebody walks in to see their cardiologist and the cardiologist says, "I, I, I got some bad news. There's a problem with your aortic valve, and if you want your heart to keep pumping blood so that you can keep living, it's going to have to be replaced. And then the patient looks at the doc and says, okay, doc, well, what does that surgery look like? And the cardiologist says, well, we're going to take the the valve from a pig's heart and put it into you. And I guarantee you, there's gotta be people who would, like me, look at that doctor and say, you are out of your mind. You're telling me you're gonna take parts from a pig and put them in people, and that's gonna magically solve the problem? That sounds ridiculous. How could a medical doctor, science, say something as ridiculous as that? I'm not gonna let you do that to me. And what would the cardiologist do? Well, she'd have to say, well, I'm gonna point you to the history. Don't you know we've been performing this procedure since 1965? And then, uh, you know, she might uh, put the patient in touch with someone who's had the procedure and say, uh, you know, let me put you in touch with Phil who had a pig valve put in him a few years ago and it's given him a new lease on life. I mean, on the surface, we've got to admit, putting pig parts into people seems ridiculous, right? Can we just be honest with that? I mean, it seems ridiculous. And and to say that that would extend our life and solve our problems, that sounds delusional. And yet we know that it works because we have seen the evidence. And in the same way, what Paul is saying is eternal life may, may seem ridiculous on the surface, but the resurrection of Jesus is the evidence that eternal life exists. Look back at verse 20. There in verse 20, uh, Paul wrote, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And what Paul argued, we looked at it a, a couple of weeks ago, what Paul argued there was, hey, um, Jesus has risen from the dead as an example and as a, as a witness that One day, all of those who trust in him when he returns will likewise rise from the dead to rule and reign with him forever. This is the evidence. And so Paul is pointing our eyes back to the history some 2,000 years ago. And just like the cardiologist, he's introducing us to someone who has undergone the procedure of a bodily resurrection and saying, this thing has happened in the person of Jesus Christ so you may have your doubts about eternal life. You may wonder, how can that be real? Doesn't that just seem like some delusion somebody dreamed up? Isn't it just wishful thinking? And Paul is saying, no, because it has happened in history. Jesus has risen from the dead as the first fruits of all of those who have fallen asleep. And so what what Paul will drive on in verses 50 through 57 here in our text this morning is that this is exactly what's going to occur when Jesus returns. Uh, Those who are dead will come back to life. Those who are still living will just be like, okay, here's Jesus. And then in an instant, everyone will be changed. Everyone will be transformed. The, The perishable body will become imperishable. The the mortal body will become immortal. We will be fit, our bodies will be fit for the new environment, a new heaven and a new earth. Eternal bodies for an eternal world. And the, the reason, after all, that we wrestle with death, the reason that we struggle with these things is all because, verse 56, because of sin. And the good news of the gospel is that although we've all sinned, we've all disobeyed God. We're deserving of death and hell. God in his love sent God the Son, Jesus, into the world. And Jesus lived a perfect life. He obeyed the law perfectly. He fulfilled the law for you and me. And then he went to a cross and he died on that cross to pay the penalty for your sins and mine. And the reason we know that worked, the reason we know that our sins can be forgiven the reason we know that we have access to eternal life in jesus is because then on the third day jesus rose in victory over sin death and the devil and he rose in power and ascended to heaven where he now lives and he offers forgiveness of sins eternal life adoption as the children of god to all who would say i'm not going to live life on my terms jesus i'm going to trust in you i'm going to follow you i'm going to live life on your terms that's the good news of the gospel. And Paul is saying in verse 58 here, n- not only then does the resurrection have the power to, to one day deliver us from death, the resurrection also has the power to deliver us each and every day from the depression and the despondency that settles in when we otherwise wrestle with death and mortality. But Because again, the... The most common cause, it's not the only cause, but the most common cause of depression and despondency is a sense of our own mortality, the weakness of our bodies, and the feelings of worthlessness that arise from them. Paul is saying that's where the resurrection of Jesus is helpful to you and me right here, right now. Because if we understand the resurrection, what will we, be? we will be steadfast and immovable. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, it's a good question because you ought to be asking yourself, is this who I am? Am I a steadfast and immovable person or not? And the way you can tell is, are you a person who has a clear sense of your purpose and your meaning, or are you someone who is frantically searching all the time for a new metric for meaning in your life? Because what happens is we're changing the measurements all the time because some people think where they're going to find meaning is in the right achievement. That like if I get this promotion or if my business generates this much in profit, if I attain this rank in the video game, if I am able to lower my golf handicap this amount, if I'm able to get this many followers on Instagram, if I'm able to achieve this, then my life will have meaning. And like Sisyphus, they begin to kind of try to push their boulder up the hill, you know, engage users on Instagram, practice their putting, put long hours in to gain the promotion. And and they are striving to find meaning through the achievement. But what happens? Some of the most depressed people I know who are are the people who have achieved their dream. But because if you ever get there, you, you expect, hey, I, I got the promotion, I, I got this many followers, I, I'm, I'm this good at golf. You, you expect to receive this tremendous amount of, of, of joy and meaning and significance from your accomplishment, and you find, wow, th- this is actually pretty hollow. It's empty, it's vain. I mean, imagine if Sisyphus was to actually get that boulder up to the top of the hill, what would he have to show for it? He'd just have a boulder on top of a hill. Like, big deal, dude. And yet that's w- what our lives are like. And so what we do is we, we just shift the, the measurement and we say, okay, well, what I need is more of this. That promotion didn't satisfy, but I'll, I'll, I need another one. That amount of profit didn't satisfy. I just need bigger ones. I, uh, that amount of followers didn't do it for me. I just need more. And we, we delude ourselves into believing that more of this will provide the meaning I'm searching for. Or we just shift the achievement completely. We say, okay, I couldn't find meaning in my work. I haven't been successful there. Let me dive into video games because maybe I can be more successful in this world. And we just we move the metric constantly because we're, we're trying to find meaning. We're movable. Other people, they, they think they're gonna find meaning in, in the right pleasure. And so they think, you know, well, what's going to give my work and my life meaning is I'm going to work and it's going to give me that vacation. It's going to fund this hobby and I'm going to take joy from that and then my work will be worth it. But how does that turn out? I mean, have you ever had someone return from a vacation and say, oh, that was so wonderful, I never have to take another vacation again? No, it, it doesn't ultimately satisfy. And so there's always another vacation Maybe a more exotic and expensive location. It's why some of your husbands, their hobbies just get more and more expensive and you're free to elbow them right now, right? Because they say, man, this hasn't satisfied and so maybe if I invest even more, then my hobby will satisfy the way I want it to. And we've seen people, haven't we, who they think that ultimate satisfaction is going to be found in sex. And they get married and they're quickly disillusioned because they find that marital intimacy doesn't deliver what they, they thought it would. And so then what happens? They're, they're sent out to search the internet or to search the streets for sex that they think will satisfy. And they spend their lives searching for it, but they don't live a full life, do they? They live an empty one and they ruin it. It destroys them because they think that meaning can be found in the right pleasure. Some people think that meaning can be found in the right cause. They look out at the world and they see all kinds of injustice and and they think, you know, if if I can just right that wrong, if I can attach myself to this cause, if I can make someone else's life better, then my life will have mattered. Here's the problem with that. If this life is all that we have, if we're just here by chance, if there is no God, no moral absolutes, then any justice is really just a fantasy in which you're forcing your morality on someone else. Because who gets to determine what is just and what's unjust? And so the Apostle Paul steps in and he says, look, don't you see how the resurrection changes everything? Because what we find is that meaning, yes, it is found in achievement. What our heart longs for is true. The problem is the achievement that meaning is found in is not the achievements of you and me, but what has been achieved by Jesus Christ on the cross. It was finished upon that cross. And don't you see how that changes things? Because if your life, if you are convinced that meaning is found in achieving this or that, if you don't achieve it, your life hasn't mattered. That's a lot of pressure. But once you understand that the meaning you are looking for has been achieved at the cross of Jesus Christ and that you have meaning through what he has accomplished, the pressure is lifted. And, and you realize that... Man, I, I can abound in the work of the Lord and I can know that my work in the Lord, because he has secured it, will not be in vain. It will not be empty. And what some people do is they arrive here in verse 58 and they read, "Okay, I've got to abound in the work of the Lord. And so they think I've got to change my career. I've got to change my activities. I've got to stop doing these things and I've got to start, start working over here because this is the work of the Lord and this is just, you know, I don't know, working for the man. But what we're going to see in a few weeks when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, is that you can work for the Lord wherever you are, wherever He has placed you, for whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things to the glory of God. Abounding in the work of the Lord has nothing to do with changing your career or your hobby or where you are working. It just means working where the Lord has you in such a way that he would be glorified knowing that as you're entering data into a spreadsheet or while you're filing someone's taxes or uh, while you're paving roads or, or plumbing, whatever you are doing, when you do it unto the Lord, it glorifies Him and that work will not be in vain. And it also means that you don't have to hit a home run in what you do. When Lindsay and I uh, took our first foster placement, I don't know if we necessarily thought we were going to change the world, but we thought we were going to change one, one life. Well, we picked that little girl up from the NICU. We held her in our arms. We, we fed her. We changed her. We were up late at night. We, we did everything we could to care for that little girl. And then after several months of caring for her, thinking that we were going to adopt her into our family, DFPS came in and removed her from our home to, to put her in the home of some extended family of hers. And our hearts, man, that, that was hard. Because we thought, man, we didn't think this is what we were doing. We, we thought we were going to invest much deeper and, and, and a lot more into this little girl's life. And if, if we thought our meaning came from raising her in the knowledge of the Lord and being able to speak with her and study the Bible, then, then what we did would have zero meaning. But because of the resurrection of Jesus, we know that there is a God who rules and reigns over all things, and he has a purpose in every moment. And so while she may have never been able to speak to us, we know that the work we did in those months will reap eternal consequences in her life and in ours. Our work in the Lord is not in vain. It means that um, our heart's desire to find meaning in the right pleasure is is true. There there is a right pleasure that gives meaning to life, but it is not the pleasure that the world seeks. We're we're told that if we have Christ, we, we have pleasures forevermore at His right hand. And that's good news because if you think that that pleasure is where you find your meaning and it's pleasures in this world, you're going to look at other people's lives and there are people who have more than you, amen? (laughs) And you can feel like my life means less because I don't have what they have. I can't travel where they travel. I can't do the things they do. My kids don't get to do the kinds of things that their kids do. And so their lives mean less. But once you see that meaning doesn't come from those things, But that in Christ you have all things and your children have access to everything they need. Man, it changes everything, doesn't it? I will never forget a conversation I had my senior year of high school as I felt called to preach the gospel with a mentor of mine and I was in tears in his office and I just said, the thing I struggle with most is, I don't know that I'm going to make as much money as my father and I don't know what that's going to mean for my family. And I'll never forget, he looked at me and he said, Aaron, do you love your dad because of the things he's able to give you? And I realized, not at all. The meaning that I have in my relationship with my father is because of who he is, the man he is in Christ Jesus. And I can give that to my kids. There is pleasure in him forevermore. It's why in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 26, we're told that Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing instead to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, because that's what they are. They are fleeting pleasures. And why did Moses choose to be mistreated among the people of God? Because he counted the reproach of Christ as greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. And it is only when you have the resurrection of Jesus Christ in your view, it is only when you are confident in eternal life that you can account the treasures of Christ to be greater than the treasures of this world. It's the only way your children and your grandchildren will be able to see that in you and hold on to it themselves. Because there's pleasure in Christ, but it is not here in this world ultimately, but in the next one. Some people think that they're going to find pleasure in the right cause. But you know, if, if you think that, that you're going to find meaning and joy in, in righting a wrong, you're going to be in a world of hurt really quickly because there is a lot of wrong that needs to be righted. Even if you were able to, say, put an end to hunger in Hayes County, I don't think you're going to be able to do that. But let's say in your dream world, you could put an end to hunger in Hayes County. There'd be hunger in the next county over. And you're going to feel this pressure that I've got to right every wrong. But this is where the resurrection is helpful, because at the cross, that's what Jesus has done. Jesus has taken the just punishment for every injustice in this world upon himself. And because Jesus has done that, you and I have been empowered to be sent out into the world to bring change, not not change everything, but to change what the Lord would have us to change. It's why Christians were those who put an end to the slave trade. Because empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, they looked and saw something wrong with the world and they said, by God's grace and with God's help, we can't solve everything, but we can put an end to this. It's the reason that believers in America today look at abortion and they say, "Hey, we can't we can't stop every injustice in the world today, but we can by God's grace and with God's help try to put an end to this one." But because we know that our our labor in the Lord will not be in vain. Others, you know, you you're here this morning and you say, "Aaron, that that's all well and good, but the problem I have is that I feel like my life doesn't have meaning because it's clear my life doesn't mean anything to God. I mean, Look at what I've been through. Look at the hard things that have happened to me. God has forgotten me. He doesn't care. How can you say to me that my life has meaning when clearly God doesn't think so? But don't you see how the resurrection and the gospel help us there too? What does Jesus cry from the cross but... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why why have you forgotten me? Jesus, at the cross, that feeling of forgottenness was poured out upon him so that you would always be remembered. I mean, that's what is promised to us in Isaiah 49, verses 15 and 16. Where we're told, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. Yet I will not forget you. And why not? Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Jesus was nailed to a cross, and that feeling of being forgotten was poured out on him so that he would never forget you or me. Don't you remember the story of Joseph? His brothers sought to kill him. He was falsely charged of sexual assault, rotted in prison for years, and I guarantee you, he must have felt like he'd been forgotten by God, that he was alone. And yet, at the end of the story, we learned that he was never forgotten, nor was he alone, but it was all a part of God's plan. What man intended for evil, God intended for evil for good. God used the circumstances in his life, hard and difficult circumstances, in order to not only deliver him, but to deliver all of Israel. You see, when Joseph thought he had been forgotten, he hadn't. It was just a part of God's plan. When Jesus at the cross thought he had been forgotten, he hadn't been. It was just a part of God's plan. And when you feel forgotten right here, right now, you can trust because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that you have not been forgotten. It is just a part of God's plan. That God is with you and there is a purpose in every pain. And that just as Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, one day you and I will rise from the sufferings of this world into a new life with glory that cannot even begin to be compared with the greatest thing in this world right here and right now. That is the Christian hope. And that is what helps Christians to find meaning in the present. Death has been defeated. Eternal life is the answer. So may we be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because we know that our work in the Lord is not in vain. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would shape our lives by the gospel in such a way that, Lord, wherever You have placed us, whatever we are doing, we would seek to do it in such a way to give honor and glory to You. Father, we pray that we would trust the results to Your hands. Father, I pray for those who are here this morning and and they feel forgotten, abandoned by You. Lord, I pray that by a special act of your Holy Spirit. God, that God, that they would even feel within their body right here and right now, God, your presence with them. That you would stir in such a way that they would know that you were with them, that you were working for their good. Father, I pray that that would bring comfort and hope and joy even to their hearts as they grieve. And We ask this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit.
0: Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Hayes Hills Podcast Network. Feel free to follow us for more content, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit us at hayeshills.com.